Bites is a weekly osteosarcoma webinar and podcast presented by MIB Agents. This week, we're talking with Dr. Alana Church, Associate Director of the Laboratory for Molecular Pathology at Boston Children's Hospital and instructor at Harvard Medical School, and Christina Iptoma, MIB Agents Testing and Data Directory Lead and OsteoWarrior Mom. Our panelists are Maeve Smart, OsteoWarrior and MIB Agents Junior Board Member, and Amanda Levine, Patient Advocate and OsteoWarrior. I'm your host, Anne Graham, President of MIB Agents. And thanks for joining us. Welcome to OsteoBytes. It's, um, I hope you have your snacks. It's almost summer, so my chocolate has some coconut deliciousness. Oh my God, I have the same. <laughs> so good, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> I am proud today to have joining us Dr. Alana Church. She is the Associate Director of the Laboratory for Molecular Pediatric Pathology at Boston Children's Hospital, and she's also an instructor at Harvard Medical School. Christina Iptoma is here. She is MIB Agents Testing and Research Directory Lead and mom to OsteoWarrior Dylan, cutest kid ever. Uh, also, as usual, we have our panelist, Amanda Levine, patient advocate, OsteoWarrior, and Facebook group manager and Maeve Smart, who's an osteo-warrior. She's a junior, a junior board member at MIB Agents and a pre-med student at Northeastern. My name is Ann Graham, and I'm also an osteosarcoma survivor and president of MIB Agents. MIB Agents makes it better, MIB, for kids with osteosarcoma. Our mission is to provide direct patient and family support for kids in treatment and their families, if you go to MIBagents.org and look up our programs, you'll find lots of ways we can support you while you're in treatment. Um, we also bring together the physician, researcher, and patient community in the spirit of collaboration to make it better. And we also, together with the osteosarcoma community, fund meaningful osteosarcoma-specific research with and for osteosarcoma. Dr. Church, Christina, Amanda, and Maeve are all about making it better too, which is why they're here. Dr. Church, would you begin by introducing yourself, please? Hi, thank you so much. Uh, so I'm Alana Church and I'm uh, coming to you from Boston, um, here at Boston Children's Hospital, um, where we're doing a lot of great work um, with our pediatric cancer patients. My clinical and research uh, focus and specialties are in genetic testing for children with cancer, um, including with osteosarcoma. And I've been so thrilled to be able to work with the MIB group over the last few years. You're very inspiring and uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. And so I'm Christina. And so my personal experience with osteosarcoma is, as Anne mentioned, my son Dylan was diagnosed with osteo in his left humerus um, in Jan 2016 when he was nine. Um, and he's relapsed three times. So he's been on multiple chemotherapies. And um, in between when he's been at NED, he's been on um, different targeted therapies. And, and so he most recently finished up uh, chemo in February, right before we went to Scottsdale for the Factor Conference. Um, so that was fitting closure. Um, and he's currently on a targeted therapy now, um, and knock on wood, NED. And so um, testing has been really helpful for us um, as we've been kind of navigating this journey and just trying to find potentially effective therapies for him. So 
super happy and honored to be here. Thanks. Hi, my name is Maeve. I'm a two-time osteosarcoma survivor and I was diagnosed in 2011 and 2014. I'm now six years no evidence of disease. I'm going into my fourth year at Northeastern and I'm a member of the junior board at MIB. I'm Amanda and I'm involved with the Facebook group about osteosarcoma. And um, I was diagnosed in 1987, and then I've had, it put me as a person who I am. So when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2010, I had that fight in me, and I have been advocating for OS since then. In 2018, I was diagnosed with ALS, which I'm living with, and I will, OS is still at the forefront of my fight. So, and Anne, I thank you again and again for allowing me to be a part of the osteobite session. Right, so let's go ahead and jump in. So um, Dr. Church and I will be giving an overview of the testing and research directory today. Um, and as I mentioned, I'm, my personal experience with this um, is from a parent perspective. It's kind of a process that I've been through, that I continue to go through, and we're super fortunate to have Dr. Church here um, to provide scientific expertise. Um, so with that, we'll go ahead and jump in. Okay, so uh, the MIB testing and research directory really addresses two types of tests. Um, the first type are tests that can help inform a personal treatment plan. And then the second are studies that won't necessarily return personal results, but will just help advance general osteosarcoma research. And the idea for this actually really grew out of the 2019 Factor Conference where we kind of realized there were a couple of unmet needs. Um, one was just to give patients and families a resource to kind of figure out and navigate kind of the different testing options that were available. Um, and then secondly, we kind of realized there was this community of doctors and researchers who needed samples to help uh, move their research forward. And then there was this whole community of um, osteosarcoma patients and families who really wanted to contribute to that, but um, they weren't really sure how to find each other. So the goal is also to try to kind of connect those two groups. Um, so we'll cover those two things. Um, and the first part where we're talking about informing a personal treatment plan, um, a really great thing to do is come up with a test plan. Um, and that can really help you plot out a strategy to gain insight on what treatments might be most effective for your specific tumor. Um, and so the first step in that test plan is to really um, discuss testing options with your doctor. Um, and uh, the second step is then to ask questions along the way. And that can be questions of your oncologist, but also um, questions of the test provider that you're thinking about working with or the um, principal investigator of the study that you're thinking about participating in. And then most of these tests do require um, tumor tissue, and that can be a limited commodity. And so it's really important to really prioritize tissue allocation because likely you'll 
um, have a long list of tests that you're interested in doing, but maybe not enough tissue to go around. Um, so it's important to prioritize that. And then um, I'm gonna just go through a couple more steps and we'll circle back to that. Um, so Dr. Church can maybe add some more around that because she's been really instrumental in improving communication in that area around tissue allocation. Um, and then likewise, prioritizing a list of drugs is really important because for the same reason, limited tissue. So you might have not enough tissue to test all the drugs that you want. And also because it can be kind of costly to test drugs. So it might be kind of cost prohibitive to test a super long list of drugs. So you'll want to kind of prioritize that list as well. And then just to kind of repeat this, um, anytime there's a relapse or resection, um, the tumor profile can mutate over time. So it's really helpful to have the most recent sample to test with. Um, and an overarching principle as you're kind of going through this whole process is to really focus on test results um, that will give you actionable results. So just as an example, um, there might be some preclinical you know, study that you've read about some drug that sounds interesting or promising, but if it's not something that your oncologist would ever feel comfortable prescribing, then you know, if you're working on prioritizing your list of drugs, maybe that drug isn't at the top of your priorities. So for example, um, you know, we worked really closely with Dylan's oncologist to kind of agree on a mutual uh, set of criteria um, for something that she would be considerable, uh, that she would be comfortable prescribing. So for example, um, something that's FDA approved, um, something that has uh, safety and dosing um, uh, data that's been published. So it's been tested in pediatrics, ideally something that's been tested in osteosarcoma and so just kind of agreeing on that you know, criteria um, of drugs that she would be comfortable prescribing just helps set us up for when we actually get our test results, we know it's something that we can act on. And so the testing and research directory really focuses um, on helping with these first two steps in the process. So um, it's meant to kind of inform that discussion around what the different testing options are, and then also help you think about questions um, along the way. And then Dr. Church, do you want to maybe add some more color around the tissue allocation? Sure. So I'm a pathologist and pathologists are sort of part of your medical team um, that are behind the scenes. So we work in the lab and tissue allocation is, you know, an important part of our work. Um, and it becomes really important for patients and families, you know, as you're navigating through um, cancer treatment in getting the kind of testing done that you want to do to sort of help you create a personalized um, plan. We've been doing a lot of work here um, in Boston at um, communicating well with one another. So just as Christina described, communicating with, communicating with her oncologist and the oncologists communicate with us about the, uh, what the patients want and you know, if they uh, have been consented to different studies. Um, and all of that is really important in getting the tissue to all the different places that it needs to go. And we also need to, of course, make sure that there's tissue and pathology that we need to do the evaluation to make the patient's diagnosis and to do a great job of that, which is our, our top priority. Um, so we continue to sort of work on those workflows um, to get the tissue to all the places it needs to go. And one of the issues that's particularly important for osteosarcoma patients and families is, uh, you know, making sure that the tissue hasn't been treated with um, a strong acid, which sometimes is used in the lab to, um, 
dissolve the bone matrix, um, which also um, will then sort of destroy the DNA and RNA that you would need to do the genetic testing down the road. Um, so that's another thing that we're working on, and there are new um, agents out there that help us to do the decalcification, but also to keep the DNA and RNA in good shape so that you can get all of the testing that done that you want to do. So um, still talking about those um, types of tests that can help inform a personal treatment plan. So um, there are kind of two main buckets of tests that are addressed in the directory. The first are um, tests that can help you understand tumor characteristics and drivers. Um, so these are genomic sequencing types of tests. Um, they can identify mutations or pathways that might be targetable with a drug. Um, but there are a few caveats to note about these types of tests. And for those of you that have had these tests done, um, you can are probably familiar with this. Um, so you may, first of all, not get any mutations pop up in your test results. Um, or you might get mutations, but there are no drugs today that target those mutations or pathways. Um, or even if you do get some mutations um, that have some um, targeted uh, drugs, therapies, um, you're not totally sure if those mutations are the drivers uh, or it could be a passenger mutation. Um, so just a few caveats to note around those test results. However, they still can be very um, informative and directional. And then the second kind of bucket of tests here are the functional drug tests. And these are the types of tests that test drug efficacy on cancer cells. So it's really just seeing how effective the drug is at killing cancer cells while hopefully not really harming the healthy cells. And those types of tests can be done um, independent from genomic sequencing, and they don't really take into account any genomic info. It's just simply looking at what the drug does when you put them on the cancer cells. Um, it can be helpful, though, to do one before the other um, because there are so many, um, there's good news, so many targeted therapies today. Um, it can really, again, be hard to narrow down that list of drugs that you want to test. Um, so if you do that genomic sequencing beforehand, and if there are some mutations that pop up into that, then that kind of helps you narrow down the list of drugs um, that you might then want to test when you do functional drug testing. Okay, so for um, the genomic sequencing tests, so these are those types of tests that help you understand tumor characteristics and drivers, um, there are two tables in the directory um, that kind of go over these types of tests. The first is an overview, and that overview um, kind of lays out the different types of genomic sequencing tests. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard the terms whole exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing, targeted panel sequencing. It can be kind of hard to kind of figure out how they're different or similar. Um, so there's an overview that kind of tries to just kind of give a concise description of each, um, the pros and cons. Um, of doing those types of tests. And then there's also a companion um, directory document. I'm just gonna pull this up so hopefully you guys can see that. Let me zoom in on a little bit. Um, so the directory lists specific providers that provide those types of tests. And you can see um, that there's contact information, a description, and that just kind of highlights some key information, like whether it's a commercial institution, a research institution, um, the types of tests they offer, eligibility requirements, the types of samples that they need to do the test, the lead time, so when you can expect to get results, and then also just some notes on cost, um, because some of these 
commercial test providers will sometimes provide financial assistance or they might bill insurance. Um, so this just kind of gives you a, a, a agnostic list of providers. So that's kind of one other thing to note is that including these providers in the directory is an, an endorsement by MIB, but for those of you old enough to understand this reference, it's kind of like the white pages of um, uh, where it's just kind of listing uh, and we get the information from the companies or the research institutions and we just kind of verify that the information is correct, um, but we get that information and we verify it with them. Um, so I'm going to pop back to the overview here that lays out the different types of genomic testing and make that a little bit bigger. And then Dr. Church, um, that would be great if you want to kind of run through some of these tests. Sure. Work. So first, I just want to say this is such an impressive directory. And thank you, Christina, for putting this together. It's a huge and just amazing resource for patients who are navigating this. I agree that, you know, thinking about genetic testing, it's so complicated. I mean, it's complicated for everybody. You know, this is what I do. I think about it all the time. But, um, you know, everybody, you know, I think really has a hard time sort of getting on board with what are all the different options and, and how do those affect me. I think the first thing I would point out here is that there's sort of a big difference between what's on the top line, the germline genetic testing, and the others that are on the list, which are somatic tests, somatic genetic tests. So um, germline genetic testing means that you're uh, testing for genetic alterations that would be present in every cell in the body. And those are important because they may um, help your doctors and you to understand if there's a uh, condition that might put you at risk for um, getting cancer um, and that can be important both for the person with cancer and for their family as well if it's if it's something that runs in the family the other tests that you have up here are genetic tests that are really done on the tumor tissue which is why we were talking about tissue allocation and how important it is to get those cells um, you know preserved in a way that we can do this kind of testing and the goal of somatic genetic testing is really to identify identify any genetic changes inside the tumor cells uh, that can affect either the diagnosis or the prognosis, and I think really importantly for this group, any treatment options. So there are more and more targeted therapies out there now that uh, you know, will match a specific genetic change with a drug that's available. Um, and if you're able to find something like that, obviously that's a great, you know, can be a great option for some of our cancer patients. Um, so all, there are so many genetic sequencing technologies. These have really blown up, you know, in their availability over the last several years. And so there are a lot of choices. Um, targeted gene panel sequencing, you know, is, is sort of more and more widely available in clinical labs um, and just looks at genes that we really understand well. Um, and those are usually the um, types of genes that you would look for that may point to a specific therapy will be found in, in a targeted panel. Whole exome sequencing means that you're sequencing the entire coding sequence of your whole genome. So it's a really big area. And then whole genome sequencing is like the biggest. You're getting everything. Um, the, uh, the turnaround time, so how long it takes for you to get your test results back, as you can imagine, sort of takes longer the, the bigger of a panel you're doing. Um, and then the complexity kind of of the, of the results and the data coming back sort of increases also when you get into these bigger panels. And sometimes people find that they're getting results back that that can be confusing you know because you might have a lot of stuff that you don't in there that you don't know quite what to do with 
Um, RNA sequencing, you know, also is, is sort of a big panel in a way um, and uh, can give a lot of information. And there are different ways that we can use RNA in identifying gene changes. Um, sometimes we can find gene fusions, which is sort of less relevant to osteosarcoma than to some other cancers, but, um, you know, expression levels, so what's actually happening inside the tumor at that time. So there's a lot of really, really interesting, um, you know, and cool sequencing technologies out there. Awesome. Thank you. Um, also, I should note, too, in the directory, um, in here, there are a bunch of different, sorry, let me make sure you can see my whole screen here. There are some providers in here that aren't in the directory, um, but a lot of hospitals will have their own targeted gene panel. And so we included the ones in the directory where we could you know, actually get in touch with someone to verify that information. Um, so this is by no means all-inclusive list, but for example, um, Memorial Sloan Kettering has their impact study, which isn't listed here just because we weren't able to verify with someone in person. But I'm sure if you were a patient there, they would recommend that test, for example, or UCSF has their um, 500 panel. Um, Dylan, for example, is at Stanford and they um, have a panel at the adult cancer hospital, but they don't have a pediatric specific panel. So our hospital tends to, if a patient is interested, will send out to foundation one. It's kind of usually the, the testing provider of choice. Um, Okay, so that was the overview and directory for the genomic sequencing. And then likewise, there's also um, an overview and directory for functional drug testing. So again, these are those tests that simply just test um, how well a drug does on killing cancer cells. And you can see here, actually, let me pop this up so you can see this a little bit bigger. So this is the overview um, for the drug testing. And you can see, um, like Dr. Church mentioned, like the Genomic sequencing test world has become really mature and developed. So there are a lot more options. The drug testing, just based on my personal experience, is not as well developed. Um, there's some three different test types here that are noted. There's um, drug testing and PDX mouse models. Um, there are patient-derived organoids. There are some commercial institutions doing that, but um, I think they're still kind of still in their early development stages. Um, and there is um, ex vivo drug sensitivity testing. And um, for those of you that have attended um, Bacter conferences in the past, I know um, Dr. Uh, Loza down at University of Miami, she's doing that type of um, drug sensitivity testing. So um, not as many options, but there still are some kind of interesting things that you can do. Um, and likewise, there is a companion directory here that does again list specific providers and you can see the setup is really similar to the directory for the genomic sequencing tests. And then um, as in addition to those overview and directory um, tables for the genomic sequencing and the functional drug testing, there's also um, a list of questions, suggested questions to kind of think about as you're going through this process and thinking about what types of tests you want to have done or what study you might want to participate in. And it covers everything from um, what types of samples are required for different types of tests to um, how, who's going to have access to my data, um, who's going to own the data, um, stuff that you might not be thinking of when you're um, 
have a lot of other priorities that you're thinking about addressing. So this is kind of meant to help you kind of think through that process. And just kind of a personal story on how this is helpful. Um, early on in Dylan's treatment, we were able to send some tissue to a commercial um, test provider to do drug testing on PDX mouse models. Um, and it's actually been super helpful. And to be honest, it's probably the most actionable data that we've gotten during his whole treatment um, history. Um, however, when he relapsed a year later, we wanted to do some additional testing and um, we didn't have enough viable tissue from that most recent resection. So we wanted to revisit the tissue from his earlier resection and see if we could get that sent to a few other places to get tested. And in trying to do that, we realized that, oh, actually the test lab that we had sent our tissue to now owned that tissue. And so we couldn't really direct where they could send it. And it, made it pretty impossible for them to send it to any other institution for us. Um, so it's just kind of an example of something that we wish we had kind of thought about and known about earlier. Um, but at the time we were just rushed and trying to get this done and um, we didn't really kind of ask those questions. So this is just kind of meant to help you think about those questions in advance and during because um, it would have been nice to know that kind of beforehand going in. Um, Okay, so that kind of addresses all the um, tests that inform a personal treatment plan. And then one of the other goals of this testing and research directory was to connect patients and researchers. So, um, you know, on one hand, you have these researchers who need data and samples to be able to conduct research in their labs. And then you do have this um, community of patients and families who really want to help advance that research, um, but they have a hard time kind of figuring out how to get a hold of each other because it's a really rare disease, right? So it's hard to get samples. And it's confusing for uh, patients and families to figure out where do I send my stuff? So um, the goal was to kind of bridge that gap with a general research directory. So this looks really similar to the other directories that you saw, but this just includes um, studies that will advance general research and they won't really return any personal results. Um, but a couple of things that I wanted to highlight here um, are the osteosarcoma project. And I know actually, Dr. Church, I think you've been working on that too, so feel free to add anything around that. But um, this is uh, the Count Me In project. And also for those of you who are at the uh, Factor Conference in February, hopefully you got a chance to meet the amazing team from the Broad. But this is, just to put a plug in for this, it's super fast registration. I think it took like 10 or 15 minutes to go through the registration process, which basically gives them permission to access your medical records and get your pathology reports and scam reports. Um, and they do all the heavy lifting to get all that information to hopefully then build a big database where we can start to see some patterns. Um, I don't know if there's anything you wanna add to that. This is such a cool project. It's really, um, you know, it really brings patients and families in um, to participate in the research. And I think it's, you know, it's really designed to do that. And it's really amazing, you know, the work that they've already done. This group has already done some, other, you know, focused on some other tumor types and they've had just really amazing results. So I'm very happy to be, you know, involved as they sort of move into osteosarcoma as the focus of their research. And definitely if anybody's interested, it's a great way to participate. Yep. Um, and down at the bottom here. Can I add two cents on that yeah. one with you? Um, you can participate on any level. So you don't have to say, 
here's everything, here's my medical records, here's my surgical records, here's my tumor data. It, you can participate on whatever level you want. You can just give demographics or you can just give treat, you know, treatment date, treatment location. It's, it's participation on any level. And they launched at the Factor Conference and had, I think, over 100 signups in, in the first week or so. And that data has already proven to be really, really of interest to the researchers. So how many times have we said we really wish there was more research for osteosarcoma? This is a way to participate in research without spending a dime. You're not having to fund it. You're not having to see it through. You have the power in your own hands to affect change in osteosarcoma with your own information. So please, please, please sign up for the Osteosarcoma Project. That's my, that's my two cents and participate on any level you wish. Back to you, Christina. Yeah, no, and another cool thing about that, as you were saying that, is it is one of those projects where other researchers benefit from that, right? Because they totally share all that information with others. Yes. So, you know, you give it to one place, but then that disseminates kind of to anyone who's interested in that information, um, which is similar to another one that I wanted to point out to the bottom here, which is the Childhood Cancer Repository. So this is um, a, a COG, a Children's Oncology Group initiative, and it's funded by Alex's Lemonade Stand. And they are basically building a library of cell lines and PDX for pediatric cancers. Um, and any credentialed researcher, if they're looking for a cell line or PDX to work with, can contact them and then get a sample sent to them, um, which is fantastic. I think they said they've already um, sent samples to over 300 researchers in like 22 countries or something like that. And just to give you an example of um, the numbers here, this is actually a summary from them, from the, uh, the uh, Children's Cancer, uh, ch sorry, the Childhood Cancer Repository. As you can see here, they have 560 cell lines that they've collected so far and 100 PDX. Um, but osteosarcoma, there's only one sample of each. Um, so really more samples are needed to field research here. Um, and hopefully the osteosarcoma community can, can help that. Okay, and um, so doctors and researchers, there's a place on the website, there's a button where if you have a study, if you're working on a project and you're looking for samples from osteosarcoma patients, um, there's a button where you can uh, just fill out a quick form and then we can get that added to the directory. So again, we can kind of help make that connection. Um, there is also a, a bunch of links on the website to helpful resources. Most of these are Kind of genetic or genomic 101 links. Um, there's also a couple of interesting links though on um, participating in research or uh, there's something down here about insurance coverage for genetics testing. So just some helpful links there. And then all of this can be found on the MIB website. And actually let me just kind of switch over to the actual website here. Let's see. So this is the MIB website and here's that main menu. And if you click on about osteosarcoma, the testing and research directory is the second one down. And that takes you to this page. If you scroll down, so this kind of talks about that kind of coming up with a plan that we talk about up front. And there's a link here where it says ask questions before participating in a test or study. 
and that will um, pop up that PDF that had some of the suggested questions. And then all these um, big blue buttons at the bottom here, these link to the tables for the overviews and the directories. So here's the one for the tumor characteristics and likewise the companion directory. And this is the overview for the drug testing and the companion directory. And then uh, here's the link for that table of the general research opportunities. And then uh, the resources below. And then there's also um, this email here that you could uh, click on to send a message specifically um, for any questions or submissions for the directory. So if you are familiar with any testing companies or have done any tests and um, have either questions or a company that you think we should include in the directory, that would be fantastic if you could email us and then we can definitely look into it and try to get it included. Um, and that kind of is it for the overview. So there were so many people involved in making and creating this uh, research directory. So I want to thank Karen Davis, who's an osteo warrior, and um, Carolyn Adams, who's mom to an osteo angel, because they were um, really helpful in compiling all the information in the directory. And then also the scientific community, um, Dr. Church, Dr. Gorlick, Dr. Janeway, Dr. Painter, and many others who um, reviewed the directory for accuracy and just to kind of make sure the information we were presenting was useful. And I want to especially thank Dr. Church for joining us here today. Um, so with that, I'm happy to answer any questions about the directory, and I'm sure Dr. Church can help answer any of the more scientific questions. Thank you. Yeah. Can you hit stop share, please? Yeah. And uh, Maeve, do you want to kick off with a question or two there? Yeah, great. Um, we had a few questions from Liz Vallejo. The first was, I love the idea of driver and passenger mutations. For osteosarcoma, there seems to be many mutations in the tumors. Is there usually one primary driver mutation or do multiple mutations drive osteosarcoma? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> it's complicated. You know, we're still, we still have a lot to learn about osteosarcoma and really what's going on in there. So uh, one of the genes that we know is a driver in osteosarcoma is TP53, which is a tumor suppressor gene. And it's pretty much turned off, you know, switched off in uh, almost all osteosarcoma um, cancer cells. So that's one that we would call a driver. And then the idea of passenger uh, mutations are ones that sort of get all altered somewhere in the process that may not be critically important to the tumor biology. Um, and so we know some of the drivers and we don't know really that much about what some of the other passengers are. There are a lot of people working on osteosarcoma projects, research projects, sort of using some of the uh, resources that you mentioned in the slides before trying to understand some of those other alterations that we see and are they passengers really or are they really important and are there ways that we could sort of um, exploit them being there to, to design a, a treatment that would help to kill the cancer cell. Um, so there's still a lot to, to learn. Great, thank you. Another question was, does expression level of the gene correlate with the amount that it is driving the tumor growth? Oh yeah, that's another great question. So um, expression, so DNA, 
changes can happen in the cancer cells. And then the RNA expression is one that we can look at with RNA sequencing. And there is a correlation there with sort of the activity of um, the RNA in that cancer cell. And it's different for different types of genes. So TP53, which is one we know is important in um, osteosarcoma, is a tumor suppressor gene that gets switched off um, by a gene mutation or a gene change or a fusion. Um, and so that shows up in your expression data as like a lower expression. And then there are other genes like MYC um, that are oncogenes and they get turned on by the alteration. So they get switched on. And so you would see in your RNA sequencing data there, they had more expression um, than a non-cancer cell would. Um, and then back to your question about passengers and drivers, absolutely you can kind of think about looking at all these different combinations of data together to, to try to um, figure out what our passengers and water drivers and which ones are really important to the um, survival of the cell and that's what a lot of the research groups are doing now. I know we've heard several times at, at the Factor conference and in putting together this directory to make sure that the treating institution doesn't put that tumor in acid or formaldehyde. How can you First of all, it would be great if we all knew that that needed to not happen. But second, how do we make sure that they do that? How do we, anyway, so those are, those are the questions. Not sure how to get that across when you're the patient or when your child's the patient and you really, those things are important to you. There's so much in there. So let, let me just try to get to bits, different parts at a time. So your first question, which is about asking for tissue to be distributed to different places, you absolutely can do that. Um, it's important really to, to communicate well with your oncologist and with the pathology lab and, you know, sooner the better, right, because it's complicated. So the the pathology lab will have their typical workflow that they would tend to do, you know what I mean, if they haven't heard otherwise. Um, and if you want them to sort of make a change in the way that they normally do things, you really need to sort of give them a heads up and, and give them really specific instructions about what you want to happen. And using this testing directory is a great way to help to think through that because, um, you know, if you want to have fresh tissue sent off to create a mouse model, um, you know, that really needs to happen in a timely way and the lab needs to prepare the tissue, um, you know, just so, so that it kind of gets there and the cells are still alive. So that's sort of the most difficult. Um, and then the pushback that you might get from the pathology team, which really is done sort of with the best of interests is that they want to make sure that they have enough material to make a diagnosis, um, you know, which of course is really important. So it's, it, you know, there's, there's sort of, a, a, a push and pull with all the different things that people want to do with tissue and which is why it's important to sort of be very thoughtful about the tissue allocation and, and to be very really clear with your requests um, and we try to accommodate people as much as we can but the communication is is great <laughs> um, the, the question about decalcification I think it's that one's hard to sort of address kind of on a case-by-case -case basis but I think you know you could advocate for, um, you know, sort of use of these newer decalcification agents um, to different academic labs, um, you know, at any time. It does take them a bit of time if they haven't had that protocol in the lab. You know, they can't just kind of bring it in, you know, overnight, but um, you, you, many, most, many labs are moving in that direction now, but, um, you know, especially groups that, um, you know, I'm at a children's hospital, we think a lot about osteosarcoma, 
but other hospitals that aren't, it, you know what I mean, thinking about it as much, you know, may, may not sort of <laughs> feel the, the, the big pull to, to, to make a change in their protocol that would accommodate this kind of um, testing. I think it's also very important for people to know that you don't have to be a newly diagnosed person it could go back for years in order to participate. And we have a question. Can we get tests done by lab and maintain our own ownership of the sample? I mean, owning the sample, yeah, that's a very complicated issue and it really depends. There are a lot of different different uh, groups that were listed, you know, that Christina showed us, um, and they probably all have a different policy about kind of how they handle things. Um, you know, I can say for our group, when we, uh, you know, we have a very active research community here. So we, um, you know, if there's enough tissue available, we'll allocate some um, cells to research projects like uh, PDXs that sort of then can get distributed to, to different researchers. Um, and those become sort of freely available, but um, it, it is difficult, especially in that setting, they get de-identified. So there's not a way then for them to sort of for the patient or the family to kind of like recall it because nobody knows which one's which and that's by design right it's it's sort of to preserve the patient's anonymity in, in the context of a research study so each different program will have their own way of handling those kind of things um, so you really have to ask <laughs> yeah and i will just add from personal experience um just asking because i as you can imagine, after that experience, I definitely asked that question when we were looking um, at other test providers. And, um, and so some of them said, oh, definitely, you guys still own the tissue and fats, we will cryopreserve it for you. Um, and I think actually one of the um, listings that we have in the drug testing directory is a service called StoreMyTumor, for example, and I'm sure there are many others like that, but they specifically do cryopreservation so that you could maybe have your tumor sent there, you own it, and then you can kind of direct them to send it wherever you want. That's kind of one way to handle it, where you, you're kind of paying to have it held somewhere, and then you can kind of direct where it goes. But I have also talked to um, other companies where, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm sending you our tissue for testing, but what happens, like, if we want to get our hands on that tissue after? And they said, no problem, like, we can send it wherever you want to send it. Um, so I think it is very, and it's just important to ask the question up front. Great, thank you. I have a couple more questions in the chat um, for Dr. Church. In a relapse situation, does pathology always need to take tissue? Tissue is so critical for drug and gene testing, but there often isn't much left over after the pathology takes it. Um, yeah, that's a great question. You guys have all the best questions. <laughs> um, so the way that we try to handle it here is that um, we just take a really little piece to look at under the microscope because we know that the diagnosis has already been established. Um, and then the pathology team can sort of be on your side in doing that tissue allocation because they're the ones that really know how to do that. Um, so, you know, you can sort of make a request in advance just to have really minimal tissue that gets preserved for going under the microscope and that viable tissue, um, you know, be allocated for genetic testing or for the generation of a mouse model. Um, and again, just, just the communication around that, I think is really important. So we set up workflows that, you know, this is what we do kind of on a regular basis and then certainly can deviate from those if, if, there's, a, if there's a request to do so. Great, thank you. 
Another question from Carrie is, can these tests be done even after months after the surgery was done and the tumor was removed and the hospital has sent it off and I don't know where it went? Um, yes, for sure. So the things that you can't do, you know, if you, if you wait, you can't do like it, you can't make a mouse model because you don't have the sort of viable cells anymore. Um, but if the tissue hasn't been all decalcified in acid, <laughs> it's still there and it's still with the pathology department and absolutely you can do genetic testing. So most of the genetic testing that we're doing in clinical labs and that foundation medicine is doing is done off of just sort of standard pathology material. Um, and that works, you know, it works nicely. The tests are designed to work with that, um, type of material. So you, you certainly can go back and do that testing, um, yeah, which is a great opportunity. I think one other question was uh, back to the osteosarcoma project. And um, uh, Dr. Church, you probably have the, the best answer for, on this, but how long should it take to hear back from the osteosarcoma project after signing up? They haven't heard back on confirmation of uh, a receipt. To, for my understanding, and just correct me if I'm wrong, the Broad Institute, where from where the osteosarcoma project operates, um, has been transformed into a COVID testing facility, which I'm so, I mean, I'm so in awe of that institution that they're able to turn on a dime and make their lab available for serving this country during a pandemic, which is extraordinary. The downside is that we were on a roll with Osteosarcoma Project and getting lots of people signed up and, and samples coming and, and all of that, and it came to a halt uh, because of the pandemic. So once, once they can switch off the uh, COVID testing, part of their facility, then we're back up and running with Osteosarcoma Project. In the meantime, you can still sign up for it, sort of uh, be in the queue so as soon as they're back back and ready to roll, they can just hit play on, on your, um, your generous uh, participation in, in the program. Did I miss anything? No, that was... Great, you're right. The road has has heroically <laughs> jumped into COVID testing, and they're doing a ton of testing right now. So they're they're amazing, and they also have their staff kind of all working from home. Um, so it, we're definitely in a strange moment. But I know that group is very committed to to the project, um, you know, and I'm sure they'll they'll be back at it as soon as they can. Okay, one more question, and it is from Alexis Johnson, who's an osteosarcoma survivor and also an MIB agents uh, junior board member. Um, Alexis, do you have a question? Oh, I had osteosarcoma over 10 years ago, but my tissue sample has already been decalcified and washed with acid. Can it still be useful for research at all? It, it probably isn't viable for, um, genetic research, you know, which is unfortunate. And I know it's it's something that is sort of regrettable for people um, 
you know, who had their um, surgeries done a long time ago, unless the, the pathology lab that received that sample also froze some, which some places do, sort of the more academic centers um, may do that kind of more often. Um, so you wouldn't be, you know, able to do the DNA or RNA testing, but, um, you know, the count in type projects, you know, those are still available. Um, on one of Christina's lists, it included immunohistochemistry. So there are some researchers who are doing immunohistochemistry, you know, just using slides that, um, and some of those, many of those have been decalcified and are still available. So, you know, unfortunately, it kind of shrinks your options of, of ways that you can, can contribute, but there are still a few, a few options on your list. But even still, your, your, all your other information is really relevant to researchers um, age at diagnosis, your um, time out of treatment, what you were treated, like all of those things are still really relevant. So with, with regard to your tumor, it may or may not be useful, but the rest of your information is really useful. So um, I know you've signed up, so <laughs> thank you for signing up. It, it really, it's, it, it matters. Um, okay, I think that's all the time we have. And um, so thanks everybody. You know, I, I re kind of renamed this session Osteo Chomps because this is like an amazing panel of women speakers and and scientists. And I'm I'm just I'm so I'm so honored and proud that 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 we get to have you on the MIB team. It's really cool. Okay, so next week we are going to be joined by Dr. John Healy who's the Chief of Orthopedic Oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering and an MIB Agents Board member, also my surgeon. Um, he will be talking about precision surgery for osteosarcoma. That's gonna be a really interesting session. Um, really cool, hope you can join us for that. And also wanted to add that if you have an OsteoWarrior gamer in your house who would like to game with other OsteoWarriors, please let us know. We have a core team of trained OsteoWarrior ambassador agents who game with OsteoWarriors everywhere. To sign up for this program, just go to mibagents.org and look for Gamer Agents and we'll get you, we'll get you rolling. Um, wanted to let you know also that this uh, presentation will also be a video and podcast. It should be out uh, tomorrow, um, ready to go on YouTube. To be an early viewer of all MIB videos, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. That would be great too. Um, so that will be up on YouTube tomorrow. It'll also be available on podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. And um, you can also get it on our website, mibagents.org. You just click the blue bar at the top of the page and you have access to everything that's coming up and all past, past osteobites as well. That's it, guys. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks to our guests, Dr. Church, Christina, Amanda, and Maeve. Stay safe, everyone. If MIB agents can be of help to you, please let us know. Together, we make it better for osteosarcoma kids everywhere. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Register for next week's Osteobites when Dr. John Healy, Chief of Orthopedic Surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and MIB Agents Board of Directors talks with us about precision surgery for osteosarcoma. Sign up on our YouTube channel for early viewing each week of new videos and access to the entire library of osteobites. 
for Osteobytes podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, please help make it better for kids with osteosarcoma. Visit our website at mibagents.org.